you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of John, the first chapter. And today we're going to begin where we left off last week, the 35th verse. The late 1960s and early 1970s saw a phenomenon known as the Jesus Movement. Long-haired young people turned off to drugs and turned on to Jesus Christ. It was quite a revolution. Some of us were part of that, and we were blessed by that. The residue of that still lingers today, even in the lives of some people in our church who were young people at that time. This was a time when young people who came to know Christ lost their taste for dope. And they fell in love with Jesus Christ. They didn't lose their taste for their music, however. They loved rock and roll music. One of the leaders of Christian music was a man named Larry Norman. And one of the songs which he sang, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Some of you know that song, a beautiful song about our being prepared for the second coming of Christ. But one which was a little more lighthearted and reflected the hearts of so many of those young people was entitled, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? And uh, you might look it up on YouTube if you're having need of some entertainment today. At the same time, as is often the custom, the world wanted to latch on to this phenomenon and make money from it. So there were many popular songs which were sung by the likes of Chris Christopherson and others. He sang, Why Me, Lord? It was a big hit. There was one called Put Your Hand in the Hand. Several people recorded that. And then you perhaps are familiar with the play, which was then made into a movie, Jesus Christ Superstar. It was a rather lighthearted, if not irreverent, treatment of the person of Jesus and what he did. But there was a less popular rendition of the gospel. And it was called God's Spell. It was a lyrical interpretation of the Gospel of Matthew. It, too, was a Broadway hit, and it was more serious in its treatment of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The word Godspell is a word which is an Anglo-Saxon word, and what it simply means is a story from or about a certain person. And as that word was translated into more modern English, it became known as Gospel. We have been studying the Gospel of John, just beginning to study it. And it is a story about not just one God among a pantheon of gods, but the one true God enfleshed in the person of Jesus Christ. We've seen that as we've looked at the beginning of this great Gospel. And it is a powerful story of good news. The word Gospel outside the New Testament was used, for instance, to describe a slave who brought good news of a victory by the general of his country. And when he brought that news, it was a big hooray in time of great gratitude in that particular region of the world. It was also used, and it's found on an inscription, hailing the birth of the one who became known as Caesar Augustus. It was prophetic in a way because it said, with the birth of this child... Great things will happen. Good news will come into the world because of the birth of this child. Well, no news is greater than the news about Jesus Christ. And good news is for sharing, isn't it? When you get some good news, what is the first thing you want to do with it? You want to share it with somebody, right? Certainly we do. The gospel is good news. It's the best news. The gospel is for sharing. And as we look at the passage today, in John 1, 35 through 49, we will gain insight into how we are to share the good news. Today, I'm going to walk us through these verses and comment along the way. And then at the end of the message, we're going to draw some conclusions about the sharing of the good news. Let's begin with verse 35 in John chapter 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. What had happened the previous day? We saw this last week. 
It was when John the Baptist saw Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that statement was not made in a corner. It was made in public. Jesus had come and John the Baptist had seen him and he had the revelation that this was the one about whom he had been predicting for probably months. And crowds of people were gathering to hear John the Baptist in the region of the Jordan River. Among those would have been these two disciples of John the Baptist. John had disciples, just as Jesus did. And when these two disciples heard what John the Baptist had to say about Jesus again, it probably continued the conversation that they had been having before Jesus showed up on this day after the initial declaration that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 36 talks about the way in which John the Baptist looked at Jesus. It was a second opportunity for John the Baptist to take a look at Jesus. He was convinced, probably, but he wanted to make sure. The reason we know that is the word which John the Evangelist chooses to describe the way in which John the Baptist looked at Jesus. It's a compound word, which means to see in two. He looked intently at the person of Jesus Christ. He was very interested in making sure that the declaration he had made the day before was in fact true. And once more, he confirmed what he said as he looked upon Jesus as Jesus walked. Now, I need to pause here and make this observation. The words he walked would indicate to us that this was a past tense kind of thing, but actually in the original language, it's a present tense statement. Let me interpret it that way. As he looked upon Jesus, as Jesus was walking. And the next word, translated as a past tense as well, said, there's a way in which people would speak in that day. It was called historical present, which would be equivalent of saying something in the past tense. But actually, he was saying this. This is what it really says. As he looked upon Jesus, as Jesus was walking, and is saying, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, the reality is for you and me today, the Bible is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. John the Baptist is still speaking to us. Better still, the Spirit of God is still speaking to us through the Word of God about this whole matter of Jesus being the Lamb of God. And we have access to this picture. We have license to use our sanctified imaginations to project ourselves into the situation and imagine the scene that is being depicted here by the gospel writer under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as they saw what was going on and heard what they heard from John the Baptist, these two disciples heard him speak. This statement, heard him speak, suggests they heard with understanding. They understood what he meant when he said that Jesus is the Lamb of God. That Jesus is the great sin bearer. That Jesus not only takes our sins away in the sense of removing them from us, but in addition to that, Jesus blots our sin out, as we saw last week, as we looked at Isaiah 53. Their sins and lawless deeds, the Bible says, God will remember no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. Why? Because the Lamb of God takes away our sin. And the Scripture says at the end of verse 37, they followed Jesus. Look at verse 38. And Jesus turned... And beheld them following. Jesus sensed that someone was following him. And when he turned, he saw these men following. And here again, the word translated said is actually a present tense verb in the original language. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and says to them, what do you seek? Another way of saying this would be, what are you looking for? 
And what that would indicate to us is, he's really saying, what do you want from me? What do you want from life? Here again, this is a contemporary statement to you and me. Jesus Christ is here today. Did you know that? We know that because He promises us that where two or three have gathered together in His name, there He is in the midst of them. Jesus is here. And as we seek to follow Christ, this is what He's asking us. What do you want out of your life? This is a question that every thinking person asks of himself or herself. What is this life all about? And Jesus wanted to cause these, as He does want to cause us, these two People who were following him, he wanted them to think about that. And notice their reply. And they said to him, Rabbi, which translates teacher, where are you staying? The word Rabbi literally means my great one. It was used by people who heard someone teach who made a great impression upon them or someone whom they heard teach, who made a great impression upon them, that they wanted to attach themselves to and be discipled by. This was a way of saying something to honor the person who was a great teacher. These rabbis in Jesus' day had no ordination process that they went through. Historians tell us it was 70 years later before ordination became a practice among the rabbis. Men would go to rabbinical school, they would study under a leading rabbi, and then at the end of the course of study, they would be ordained for ministry. A lot like people preparing to be pastors who go to a seminary and get training and then thereafter ordained. And the question they have, where are you staying? They wanted to hang out with Jesus, didn't they? Do you know we take this for granted, that we can hang out with the Lord any day, any time of the day. And we neglect the possibility of hanging out with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read a little further what the Scripture says. And they stayed with Him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. This would have been 4 p.m. in the afternoon, according to what we can discover. The Romans calculated time from midnight forward, the 24 hours. But Elder Pliny, who was something of a Roman journalist, and we have a lot of his writings which are preserved even to this day, going all the way back to the first century, said this about common people throughout the Roman Empire, that the common man would calculate the hours of the day beginning with dawn and going to sundown. So 6 a.m. until 6 p.m. So the tenth hour would be about 4 p.m., They had spent time with Jesus. The day was growing late. And obviously Jesus offered that they could stay with him. And they did. Wouldn't you like to have been there and eavesdropped on their conversation? The questions which they would have had for Jesus and the way in which they would have received from Jesus. Now here again, you and I have that privilege every day. How's that so? Because we have access to the Word of Christ in the Word of God. Undoubtedly, as they listened to the Lord Jesus, their faith grew. Remembering what the Bible says in the book of Romans, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. Listening to Jesus speak. In the book of Luke, as we've seen on other occasions, Jesus lauds, He praises a little lady named Mary in whose house he was a guest, along with her sister Martha. He's teaching, speaking. And while Martha is busying herself to prepare a meal for Jesus and his apostles, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening. And then Martha barges into the room and begins to bluster at Jesus about why he's letting his, her little sister sit there when Martha needs her help in the kitchen. And then Jesus says... Your sister has found the better thing. It's the one thing which cannot be taken from her. Do you know that's true of you and me? The Word of God cannot be taken from us. Listening to Jesus Christ is something that has an impact, not merely for now, but forever. 
Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. We should hang on the words of Jesus. And this is what I'm sure these two disciples of John the Baptist were doing. And they were in transition already. They themselves becoming disciples of Jesus. Well, this idea of staying with Jesus was something that Jesus enjoyed evidently. In the Gospel of John a little later, the third chapter, the Bible talks about Jesus retreating with some of his disciples, his apostles. He knew that it was important that he has some private time with these to whom he would eventually entrust the enterprise of spreading the gospel all over the world. We know them as apostles. And John tells us in John 3 that Jesus was spending time with his disciples. Now, that seems so innocent and really not too important. It seems rather mundane, just spending time. It looks like from a distance he was wasting time. But Jesus never wasted any time. He never does. And he was having conversation with them just like he was having conversation with these new inductees. The first two, as far as we know, who followed him and began this road of being discipled. By the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word translated spending time that's used by John in John 3.22, that one word is a word which was used outside the New Testament to describe a piece of clothing which had been worn thin by repeated wearing. Now I have a pair of New Balance running shoes, but for me they're walking shoes. And I've had them... I don't know how long, probably two and a half years, and I've walked a long ways in those shoes. No telling how far I've walked. A couple thousand miles at least over the two and a half years I've had them. And they're really ugly. I mean, they are dirty, and I refuse to wash them. And I've got a bunion on my right foot, and it's broken through the lining of those shoes. And I'm going to wear those shoes a long time Not just because I'm chintzy, which I am, but also because they feel good to my feet. I have grown accustomed to those shoes. I have spent time in those shoes. You know, Jesus never gets tired of spending time with you. The question for me and for you is, do we grow tired of spending time with Him? When we have this unlimited access to Him. In this walk, we call the Christian life. Let's go back to the text. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. I need to pause here and take note of a word which has already been used more than once in the text that we're looking at today. Speaking of Andrew... The scripture says he followed him, namely Jesus. And this was a word which is synonymous or was synonymous with being one's disciple. When a rabbi wanted to collect a group of people to disciple, what the rabbi would say to those people or to individuals, follow me. In other words, join up with me. Be apprenticed to me. The word disciple literally means a lifelong learner. The word disciple is a word which means learner, someone who apprentices himself to someone else to learn. That someone else being a person who would be considered a master in that particular endeavor. In this case, Jesus, the great teacher. And so, in following Christ, we sign up, as it were, to be a part of His team. To be on His team of learners for life. And Andrew, every time we see Andrew, we see him two more times in the Gospel of John... And he's always doing the thing that we see him in this passage of Scripture do. Look at verse 41. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Now, I need to make note of another word that's used frequently in this passage, beginning with this verse. Five times in these five verses that we're looking at at the moment, Five times the word find or found is used. This is what it means to share the gospel 
with people, to share the good news. It's to be shared so that we can find those people who the Lord wants to get to know. And so Andrew goes and he finds his brother, Simon Peter. Now, poor Andrew, he's always introduced, it seems, as Simon Peter's brother. We never hear Simon Peter being addressed in this way. We never read Simon Peter, Andrew's brother, although they were brothers. He probably was his little brother. And if you're somebody's little brother, especially if you had the older person being a male, it was not too fun for you growing up at times, perhaps. Verse 41, he, refers to Andrew, found first his own brother Simon. And the implication is that he didn't waste any time. He went immediately after having had this conversation and spent that time with Jesus. He could not wait to go and find his brother Simon. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah which translated means Christ. Let me pause just a moment and talk about the name Messiah. It literally means, in Hebrew, the Anointed One. It was used, for instance, to describe King David when he was anointed in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6 to be particular, specific. It was also used to describe the high priest When the high priest was installed in office in Israel, he was anointed. Leviticus 4.3 tells us this. In Psalm 105, verse 15, the Bible tells how the prophets were anointed. They were anointed with oil. The oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. They were anointed for their responsibilities. When Aaron became the high priest, according to Exodus 29, verse 7, When he became high priest, he was anointed. It's interesting. He was anointed. His head was anointed. His beard was anointed. And here's what's interesting. Probably you read it if you read through Leviticus lately in your reading. His earlobes were anointed. That's interesting. And his thumbs were anointed. And his big toes were anointed. What would that signify? That he would have ears who would hear what the Spirit of the Lord was saying to begin with. And that would be true for you and me, too. We want our ears to be anointed. He would have hands that would do what the Spirit of the Lord wanted him to do. He'd be full of the Spirit. And he had feet which would take him to carry out the responsibility of his being a high priest. The Bible says about you and me, if we know Jesus, the Bible says in the book of 1 Peter, we are a kingdom of priests. Believe it. We are a priesthood of believers. The Bible tells us this. And so, we're not the high priest. Jesus is our high priest. We know that. However, we too have an anointing. Did you know that? In the book of 1 John chapter 2, verse 26, the Bible says, You have no need of anyone to teach you because you have the anointing. And that's obviously a reference to the person of Jesus Christ. We too have this anointing. Let me get back to where I started and... Got myself sidetracked, okay? Elisha, when he was beginning his ministry, it's recorded in 1 Kings 19, this prophet of God, he was anointed. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. And Andrew was looking for the Messiah. Simon was looking for the Messiah. All of Israel was looking for the Messiah. But these two individuals must have had a hungrier heart than others because it was they who were enlisted into the service of the Lord at the outset of His itinerating ministry. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a priest. And Jesus is our King. Jesus is the Messiah. Looking back at this passage of Scripture, verse 41, I need to make note of this. He found first his own brother Simon. Probably at least part of what's conveyed by that is what I mentioned just a moment ago, that it was something he prioritized, finding his brother Simon. That's the first thing which came to his mind as he was leaving wherever Jesus 
And he and this other disciple who is unnamed, and we'll talk about who that might be in just a moment, he wanted to get that good news, the gospel, to his brother. But it's possible the language would allow this as a possible interpretation of the word first because of the place that the word first finds in the sentence. It's at the very beginning of the sentence in the Greek language in which the New Testament is written. When someone would speak or write something, that which they wish to emphasize would be placed at the beginning of the sentence. And here's the possibility that of the two disciples... He was the first one to go share the good news. Now, who is this second unnamed disciple? Well, I'm just going to tell you who I think it is. We don't have time to go into all the details of this, but I think it was the writer of the gospel. He is described by himself as he writes in the 21st chapter of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. There are only oblique references by the writer to himself in the gospel. And there are things in this text, for instance, in verse 39, when he talks about the tenth hour. That's a specific time. An eyewitness would have had to have that information. It really is not all that important, except for the fact that it gives us a sense that this book is rooted in history. It's not just some made-up book. It's not a book of myths. It is a book that has eyewitness account. So, let's say... John, did John have a brother, by the way? Who was his brother? James was his brother. So, by implication, probably he also went and found his brother James. We don't know that for sure, but it's rather likely because Peter and John and James and Andrew formed a business together, a fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. We know that from other places in the New Testament. Well, let's get back to the text. Verse 42. After finding Simon Peter, what does he do? He brought him to Jesus. Now look, this is our calling as followers of Jesus. It's not simply our calling. It's our privilege that we can be able to bring people to the Lord Jesus Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Those words are beautiful. And Jesus looked at him. Now, let's stop just a moment. Remember earlier in the text, in chapter 36, it says John the Baptist looked upon Jesus as he walked. The same word is used here by John the Evangelist in writing this gospel. What did he do? He looked at him. Remember what that word meant? It's a compound word. It means to look into. He looked intently into Simon. He said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. You know what Peter means? Rock. Rocky, really, is who he called him. Now, he was not a steady figure. If you know anything about Peter, he was a little bit unstable, if not a lot at times. He was a great man. He had a lot of courage. He was a very impulsive person. He needed some steadying, didn't he? And when Jesus sees him, now this is very important for us. When Jesus sees you, he does not see you only as you are. He's not fooled as to who we are. He's all-knowing. He knows who we are. But he also sees who we can become. This is phenomenal to think about. How Jesus looked at Peter. And he didn't simply stop at where Peter was, but... He proclaims something for Peter that is outstanding. Some of you are business majors, and I don't don't know, they probably don't even teach this, this theory of management anymore, but when I was in college, it was a theory which was kind of prominent at that time. In the 1960s, a man by the name of Douglas McGregor was professor of business management, at the Sloan School of Business at MIT, he came up with the XY theory of management. He said there are managers who manage people, and he called those managers, and they look at employees as X's. And the X person was a person who was sort of a dullard. 
a person who had no initiative and had to be directed in every way to be productive. And the managers had to hover over, hover over, couldn't trust these people. The ex-manager was one who was very pessimistic about people. Then there was the why theory. There was the other type of manager who was an optimist about people, saw the future blooming and blossoming in their lives. Jesus Christ is not an X kind of guy. He's a Y person when He looks at us. He sees the potential in us. He loves us. He has the power to transform us. Some of you are familiar with the name G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton was a journalist. He was a Roman Catholic apologist, not for the Roman Catholic religion per se, but for Christianity. One of his books called Orthodoxy is hailed as one of the greater works of Christian apologetics from the 20th century. He was a British man, lived in London. He could barely read at the age of nine. His parents consulted a brain specialist to see if he had some sort of mental incapacity. Do you know, by the end of his life, this man who had dropped out of high school, as we would call it, never went to university, this man had written a hundred books. He had written 200 short stories. He had written plays and poems and ballads. And he was a man who was a great sharer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had a sharp wit, too. He wrote this. He said, The worst moment in the life of an atheist is when he feels gratitude and has no one to thank. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting, isn't it? See, he was, he was a sharp guy, wasn't he? And it would seem that Jesus wouldn't pick him to be a star evangelist. He couldn't even read. Well, at the age of nine, Jesus takes those most unlikely people and uses them to bring glory to himself. As a boy, one of the fairy tales I was most enamored with was Rapunzel. You know the story, right? Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair. Remember that story? And Rapunzel was taken into the custody of a witch and she was placed in a high tower so high that she couldn't get out. And she was told by this ugly witch that she was ugly like her and the witch had seen to it that all the mirrors had been taken out of the tower so the girl would not know any difference. So every day she would tell Rapunzel how ugly she was. Meanwhile, Rapunzel grew, her hair was never cut, and she had this long, beautiful blonde hair which flowed down and reached all the way to the bottom of this great tower. One day, Prince Charming came along, and he, he saw her, and he was just knocked out, man. He was about knocked off his horse when he saw her. She was so good looking. He said, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair. Rapunzel did that, and what did he do? He used her hair as a rope. She had some strong neck muscles, didn't she, to do that? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking that girl would have been had her neck broken in most cases. And when he reaches the tower and gets inside... And they look at each other's eyes, as is true in fairy tales we know. It was love at first sight, right? But then, as she looked in his eyes, his eyes reflected her image. And she knew that she was not ugly. She was actually beautiful. Now, what happens when Jesus comes to this man, Simon Peter? Or he comes to you and me? He sees us as we are. But that is not all he sees. He sees what we can become as a result of his loving power in our lives, executed in our lives. Do you know Jesus Christ wants to make you into a person who is used mightily of him? There's no question about it. One more illustration before I move on. Some of you are musicians. Some of you like guitar. If you are a guitarist, especially if you've had any interest in classical guitar, you know the name Andres Segovia. Segovia, arguably the greatest classical guitarist in the history of classical guitar. 
lived well into his 90s. He was a hard taskmaster. One of his students named Christopher Parkening, who is a committed follower of Jesus Christ, was being interviewed years ago about Segovia. And he was asked, what made Segovia so great? And this is what he said. He said, first of all, it was his technique. And then secondly, it was the beautiful sound that he was able to elicit from the instrument. Thirdly, it was his passion which allowed him to connect with his audience. And then, and perhaps more than anything else, he said, it was his perseverance. He persevered with what would be considered, Segovia said, to be the stepchild of classical instruments, the guitar. The guitar would find no place in the great concert halls of Europe until Segovia came along. Perseverance. You know, Jesus perseveres. Jesus is not going to walk out on you at any point. If you trust Christ with all your heart, you give Him your life, He will never leave you. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never give up on you. He will discipline us. Segovia was known as being, as I mentioned earlier, a very strict teacher. He was harsh in the things that he would say, but he had a point in saying them. Sometimes the things which Jesus will say to you are indeed harsh. They're designed, however, to discipline us and to conform us to the image of Jesus himself. So this is one of my favorite verses, 43. 42, rather. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, verse 43 says, He purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now, in my translation, and if you have the New American Standard, you notice that in each case, the pronoun he is capitalized, Right? The assumption of the translators is that Jesus purposed to go forth into Galilee and Jesus found Philip. But that's not a given. It very well could be that Andrew is the one who is mentioned here. In this text, in this story as we see it, people are always finding people and bringing them to Jesus, it seems. Jesus is those is the one to whom we are to bring people. So it's possible, if not probable, that Andrew, after having found his brother, goes forth into Galilee and he finds Philip. It would make sense, wouldn't it? Look at verse 44. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. They were friends, probably. They may have been co-workers. They may have grown up together. They may have attended synagogue together. And... Andrew would have known that Philip, just like his brother Simon Peter, really wanted the Messiah to come. That's awesome, isn't it? And what does Jesus say to Philip? Follow me. Keep on following me, literally is what he said to this man, Philip. And then what did Philip do in response? And this is what is true. People who follow Christ, by the way. They find other people to introduce to Jesus because knowing Jesus is the most wonderful thing in the world. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing God is possible through Jesus. It's awesome. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him with excitement, I'm sure, there's no sort of Laziness in the way he said this. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of John. Now, the way in which Philip describes Jesus is a bit different, isn't it? He doesn't say, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He doesn't say that, as he said to his brother. But here, Philip, I'm talking about Andrew said to his brother, but here Philip says it differently. And why would he say this? Well, he was inspired by the Spirit to say it, for one thing. But he knew Nathaniel. Nathaniel was probably more intellectual, if you will. He was a guy who 
like to think things through. He was more measured in his emotions. He was a logical man. And he was a man who loved what we would call the Word of God. We'll see why I say that in just a moment. And Philip approaches him in a way that's appropriate for him. This is another thing we need to understand. When we share the gospel with people, we need to study people a little bit and ask the Lord to show us how to introduce Christ to those people particularly. Because there are all kinds of people. We've got people in this room who are exuberant temperamentally. We've got people who are more calm, cool, and collected in the room. And we need to understand what the Lord teaches us to do in this area. And we know that Moses and the law and the prophets all speak of Jesus, right? The Old Testament was the only Bible that the early Christians had. And the Bible says about that in Romans 15, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Where did they get their instruction? In the Roman church. They got it from the Lord, of course, but they got it from the Old Testament as we would say, and the apostolic interpretation and application of that. And what's pretty neat here is the way in which Philip introduces Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Who told Philip who this person was? Well, Jesus probably introduced himself in this way. Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know... There's no mention of the village Nazareth in the whole Old Testament. Josephus, who was the historian of this time, a Jewish historian who was given to precision in his writings. He mentions many obscure villages in Palestine in the day of Jesus, but he never mentions Nazareth. The son of Joseph. Now, Jesus knew he was the son of God. He describes himself as the son of Joseph. And then... It was his foster father, of course. Verse 46, And Nathanael said to him, rather derisively, I might add, he says to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, notice Philip's reply. This is instructive for us when we're sharing the good news. His reply was simply, come and see. He didn't say, how dare you call the Messiah someone who is not good. He doesn't say that. He just says, come and see. And this is what we are called to do. When we share Christ with people, and they have this kind of response, we're not to say, I'm going to shake the dust off my feet and leave this room right now. We don't do that. We don't become defensive. What do we do? We just say, come and see. Would you be intellectually honest enough and curious enough to come and sit down with me. And we'll open the book of John. And we will see Jesus Christ. And then you can make up your mind as to whether He is who He actually says He is. This is something that will work. I can tell you from personal experience. If you will trust the Lord to use you and you'll take the courage to step out. And really, if you'll follow the impulse of the Spirit in your life to share Jesus with people, God will give you this opportunity and you can sit down with people. Lead them through the book of John. You don't have to be a pastor to do that. You just let the Holy Spirit do the work. Jesus will come alive to people. I remember one man, Jeff Stevens. I met with him 22 times at least before he received Christ. I was worn out. It was like almost a, it was a half year. And he was an engineer. No knock on you if you're an engineer. But he was very meticulous. He wanted to know everything before he decided whether he was ready to make a commitment to the Lord. And then finally, after the 22nd meeting, I said, Now, Jeff, are you ready to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? He said, I am. And he prayed to receive Christ. Another fellow, Steve Cox, he and his wife were here for a short while they came to the church which I pastored long ago on the east side. And his wife was a believer. He was not. And he very reluctantly, I know she was twisting his arm, agreed to meet with me to, and to go over the Gospel of John. And about half the meetings we scheduled, he canceled. 
And I knew it was because he just didn't want to meet with me. And I don't blame him for not wanting to meet with me. But he continued. And then I was called by the Lord to go to another church. And one of my greater disappointments in leaving was that Steve had yet to give his life to Christ. So I said, well, Lord, he's in your hands. And I moved to Arlington in September of 1984. And in February of 1985, I came home one afternoon from work and my wife had left a note. Please call Steve Cox. And it was a local number. I thought, wow, he must be here visiting on business or something. I called and he said, I have taken a job here in Arlington and I was wondering if you and I could take up reading the Gospel of John again. I said, well, sure. And it was the Monday before Easter of 1985 that Steve Cox gave his life to Christ. The week before, we looked at the passage which indicates in John 6. John 6 basically says, No one comes to the Father, to Christ, unless the Father draws him. And he says, Does that mean that really the Lord has more to do with me coming to salvation than I do? I said, I swallowed real hard. I thought, Well, this is the end of this. I said, yes, it does. And the next week he gave his life to Christ. It was awesome. It was fantastic. And so the point is, we have this opportunity to take people to Jesus. Do we not? We find those people in our sphere of influence and we invite them to come to Jesus. And look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said, of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Here again we see Jesus seeing people. He knows people. He doesn't say anything ugly about him. Remember, he had been ugly in his statement about Jesus, but he doesn't say, Nathaniel, you should be ashamed of yourself talking about me, the Messiah, the way you talked about me, saying that no good thing can come out of Nazareth. He doesn't do that. And there's, there's very good instruction for us when it comes to our sharing Christ with people here, isn't there? That we should not put the worst construction on people. We want them to know Jesus. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? This blew Nathanael away because he knew himself to be such a person. Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. The fig tree in rabbinical literature at this time was synonymous with a place of meditation on the Word of God. That's why I said earlier, Nathaniel was a man of the Word. He was meditating, perhaps, about the Messiah under a fig tree, and Jesus saw him. Nathaniel answered him in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. There are 17 different names which John gives, or are given, to Jesus in the first chapter of the book of John. That's amazing, isn't it? Now, I want to draw some things that are applicable, applicable to us from this text. We've seen a lot that applies. But as I finish, I want to talk about, number one, the best strategy, in fact, the strategy for sharing the gospel, and then the standard of sharing the gospel. Here's the strategy first. The strategy is multifaceted. Here's a strategy, small group, John the Baptist and two people, small group, small group experiences are ideal for sharing Christ with people because there's opportunity for fellowship, community and give and take in such situations. If you want to learn how to share Christ, you might experiment with a small group of people who don't know Christ. Just invite them to come and read the book of John with you. Just ask them to come. Here's the second thing we see. Family. Andrew found whom? He found his brother. And I'm sure, I know people in this room who came to Jesus and you wanted to share Jesus with your mother or your father, your brother or your sister, your son or your daughter, your wife, your husband. You wanted to share with family. And they see change. Remember when Jesus cast the demons out of the Gadarene demoniac? What did Jesus say to his request to take him with Jesus, barnstorming 
being exhibit A of the power of Christ to transform a life. He said, hey, I want you to go home and tell your family what the Lord has done for you. Family. This is one of many strategies that are given for us. And then lastly, friend. Philip found his friend Nathaniel. Friendship evangelism. All evangelism is relational. I don't care if it's Billy Graham or Greg Laurie standing in front of tens of thousands of people or one-to-one. It's always relational. It's a relationship that we enter into with a person by caring about that person enough to share the good news with that person. And we know the goal is to help that person enter into a relationship with the living God. So it's relational. It's small group is a great part of the strategy. Family, members, friends. Now let's talk about the standard. The verse which I asked to be read today, 2 Timothy 2.2, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who also will be able to teach others. Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others. John the Baptist to Andrew to Philip. To Nathaniel. That's multiple things that happen. This standard is the standard of multiplication. We need to pour into those whom God gives us who come to know Christ. We need to pour everything that we know about Jesus in their lives. We need to encourage them. We need to strengthen them. We need to pray for them. We need to do all these things so that they in turn can reproduce to the fourth generation. Make disciples, if you will. This is what God has called us to do, isn't it? He's called us to multiply. Not just to add, but to multiply. The good news is for sharing, if you hadn't figured it out, right? And the Lord wants us to be men and women. He wants this church to be a church that is so in love with Christ that we cannot help but share Him with our family, our friends, and anyone else that He gives us to share Him with. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the Word of God. We thank You for the instruction we receive by the Spirit from Your Word. And we pray now, Lord, that You would give us the grace not to forget what we've heard and to apply it, Lord. Help us not to be ashamed of You are your words in this adulterous, sinful generation, Lord. We're ashamed of the gospel because we know it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.